and welcome to Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Dorinda Sharp. On this episode, Alan Trammell, assistant professor at the University of Arkansas School of Law, discusses his research into nationwide injunctions, a project he worked on over the summer of 2018. Our conversation was recorded in September of that year. Trammell teaches and writes primarily in the fields of civil procedure, federal courts, and conflict of laws. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Professor Trammell, welcome. Thank you very much. What's going on in your life? Over the summer, I was working on a project about nationwide injunctions. This is probably the first project that I've taken on that is actually really, really relevant to what's going on in the political arena. So nationwide injunctions are typically thought of as a situation when one single federal court judge will prevent the president of the United States or a government generally from enforcing a policy anywhere at all. And this is considered an extremely powerful tool that judges have at their disposal. They're of relatively recent origin. It's something that courts haven't really been engaged in since about the 19, or before the 1960s or 70s. But we see this a lot. We have federal judges who are enjoining President Trump from enforcing various iterations of the so-called travel ban. We have judges who are preventing manufacturers of ghost guns from publishing blueprints, things of this nature. And a lot of scholars, in fact, most scholars have said this is illegitimate, that one single judge should not be able to do that, that there should be at least some sort of geographic restriction on a judge's power or that a particular decision should have to go through the normal appellate process before the president is full-scale prevented from enforcing a policy. My project this summer was trying to take that on and to say, that's not quite right. I think that we should be skeptical of this power. It should not be something that judges deploy as a matter of course, but that there is room for that. And I'm drawing parallels between nationwide injunctions and a topic that I've written about a lot, preclusion, which is a nitty-gritty civil procedure issue, but um, it, it essentially prevents people from relitigating issues that have already been decided. And what I've said is that the same way that you can be prevented from relitigating whether you caused an accident, mm -hmm. so too the government should be able to, or so too courts should be able to prevent the government from relitigating issues that they have lost. So under certain circumstances, these nationwide injunctions can be appropriate. So in the case of the travel ban, is the workaround for that, they, they changed the law ever so slightly and then it went back? Is, am I hearing you right? Well, so that was the problem. And actually, I don't know that my solution is a panacea. It doesn't okay. solve all of these problems. So for instance, the first iteration of the travel ban was blatantly unconstitutional, as even the administration itself recognized. Um, it was preventing people who were green card holders, uh, legal permanent residents, from being able to come back into the United States if they were traveling from certain countries. Again, everybody recognized that that was unconstitutional. The various courts, every single court that took that up said that it was unconstitutional. Now, the way that opponents of the nationwide injunctions will describe them is that they're illegitimate because they're benefiting non-parties to the litigation. So if you are a green card holder and sue and win, then you get to come in the country. These scholars would argue that every single person essentially would need to bring a lawsuit. Oh my and, gosh. Right, at least until <laughs> there becomes voluntary compliance or something like that. And my argument is that at some point the law becomes settled. It became settled very quickly. Everybody within a matter of days, in fact, recognized that that first iteration of the travel ban was unconstitutional, it was illegal, it shouldn't be enforceable. 
Great. So we got rid of that first one. Well, then there were the revised travel bans. And there was actually a legitimate dispute. And in fact, the Supreme Court wound up saying that the majority of lower courts were wrong in concluding that the travel ban was illegal. So again, my solution doesn't necessarily deal with all of these situations, but I think that it's a way to recognize that sometimes the government can behave in bad faith. And when it does so, then there is a proper role for courts, even when courts are issuing these sweeping nationwide injunctions. We are a nation of checks and balances. Indeed. <laughs> well, so what led you to this inquiry? What led you down this path? I think that it was because I was reading some of the scholarship from the scholars, some of whom I know very well, who have said that nationwide injunctions are categorically forbidden. And, and I thought, well, there's certain parallels here with this nitty-gritty procedural issue that I've thought about a lot in my teaching and that I've written about in previous work. It turns out that a friend of mine at Cornell was also having very similar thoughts. And when Zach and I exchanged papers at the end of the summer, we realized, oh my gosh, we've been thinking about this in very much the same way. Initially, I think both of us feared that we had written the same paper. It turns out that we didn't, but um, we're really hoping to work together in the future on briefs, for instance, um, in, in various courts that are considering the propriety of these kinds of nationwide injunctions. Um, and, and Zach was saying, I'm actually really heartened by the fact that somebody else had this thought because earlier people were telling me that I was crazy to view this <laughs> parallel between a remedial question, nationwide injunctions, and this nitty-gritty procedural issue of preclusion. That's a happy coincidence. It, it wasn't happy on the day when we discovered it, but it wound up being a happy coincidence. <laughs> so obviously it wasn't. What did you first research when you got into the profession of teaching and scholarship? How did you come to that? I think that I had always been interested in civil procedure and federal courts, in part because I had a phenomenal professor for both of those courses, John Harrison at the University of Virginia. And in the back of my mind, I was always interested in academia. When I was clerking for a judge in DC, one of my co-clerks and I had actually started to grapple with the issue that became the subject of my very first article, um, jurisdictional sequencing. That's about the types of questions that federal courts can take up before they decide that they have jurisdiction over the case. Now, normally, we think about these jurisdictional questions as absolutely paramount. That is the first thing that a federal court has to assess before it can go any further with a case. Usually, that's true, but there are certain exceptions to that. And so my co-clerk and I were starting to grapple with what those exceptions meant, whether there was actually good logic to support them or whether these were illegitimate workarounds by courts. Um, and I had been toggling back and forth um, with whether I thought that this was a viable project or this was just a little footnote. Um, and then it turned out that I wound up having some bigger ideas. And I think that uh, once I finally was in the academy, I had the opportunity to work with some really great mentors. And they encouraged me they said, this truly is a viable project. You should go forward with this. Um, and then that started me down the path of writing and thinking about federal courts issues more broadly. That's great. Um, so what led you to teaching and research as opposed to practice? Academia had always been in the back of my mind, um, even you know? when I started law okay. school. <laughs> yeah. Exactly um, what I was going to ask. Even when I was visiting UVA for an admitted student's day, I remember talking with the dean at the time and asking about resources to support graduates who were interested in going into academia. And he said, there are two types of law professors. 
there are the lawyers who happen to go into academia, and then there are the academics who happen to go to law school. Okay. And he said that he was the former, that he was a lawyer who just happened to go into academia. He said, if I weren't a law professor, I'd be happy working at the Department of Justice or somewhere else like that. And I thought, huh, I'm the exact opposite. I'm an academic who might be going to law school. I think if I hadn't gone to law school, I might have continued along with my first academic love, which was German literature. So that's... That's a, a switch. It is. It is. <laughs> and in some ways, that thought was what got me through the first semester of law school, through all of the stress and the uncertainty. I was thinking, look, if this law school thing doesn't work out, you can go back and get your PhD in German literature. So th that's a long way of saying that academia was always there, something that I was thinking about. When I got into clerking and then practicing, there were moments when I was really, really invigorated, but they were fewer and far farther between than I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so in 2011, I made the leap into academia. I, I took a fellowship at Brooklyn Law School and it's um, it's been a somewhat bumpy road in terms of landing the tenure track job, but right. it is a job that I absolutely love, and it's precisely for that reason that I was unwilling to give up on it. That's fantastic. So, if you're if you were an academic that just happened to study the law, what led you to law school from German literature? <laughs> <laughs> this is a somewhat circuitous route too. I was doing a a one year master's degree in England in political science. And in the course of writing my master's thesis, I wound up having to dig into some constitutional law questions, and in particular, comparative con law questions. Okay. German protections of religious freedom contrasted with American protections for religious freedom. I spent pretty much the entire summer at law library at Wake Forest, where I went for undergrad, and at the Library of Congress. And I thought, I love this. I love law, and I love the research. So. That, in a lot of ways, was the impetus for going to law school and, again, for keeping legal academia, at least in the back of my mind, as a possibility. So say there's someone listening right now who's studying something complete, they think is completely unrelated, you know, biology, music. What advice would you have for them as, if they're interested in law school, no matter what their undergraduate background, what kind of advice would you have for people who are considering law school? I don't think that I will ever forget the advice that, I don't know that this was advice so much as an observation by <laughs> the professor I've mentioned before, John Harrison, um, who taught me both federal courts and civil procedure and administrative law for that matter. And his thesis was that everything is related to everything else. In a lot of ways, that is absolutely true. Um, I think to expound on that a little bit, I would say that one of the best preparations for law school is a generalist background, a liberal arts background where you are taught to think and, and you are taught to conceptualize problems in a particular way um, and to think very critically about them. So it might be that a background in engineering or biology, foreign languages, is in some ways the ideal preparation. That's not to say that there isn't space for pre-law programs out there and the traditional majors like political science and history are, are very relevant. But critical thinking skills are far more important than the actual subject matter that you have studied as an undergrad. So study something you love. Study something you love. <laughs> Absolutely study something you love. I think that that was one of my biggest frustrations even when I was in college. I would see people who would say, well, I'm really interested in religion or Italian literature, but my parents say I need to 
major in something that's going to allow me to get a job, and therefore I'm majoring in, and I don't want to disparage other majors, right. but, <laughs> but the majors that the people perceive as being far more quote-unquote practical. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was such a shame because those four years of college are the opportunity that you have in life to study what really fires your passions. I agree. <laughs> so let's, let's go down that path a little more say we have students, current students listening. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for students who are in the throes of law school right now? As we talk, it's the beginning of October and they're getting ready for midterms. Uh, I watch them panic going through the halls. So <laughs> what, what would you say? I often remind my students in class, do the things that keep you human, get proper sleep, eat nutritious food, if you're somebody who needs to go to the gym, do that. If you're somebody who likes to watch cartoons, do that. Do the things that keep you human. Because I think that there is a tendency for first-year law students to really lose perspective, um, to get stressed out too much. I certainly was one of those. I mean, I, I remember about this time of the year really starting to panic, wondering, have I learned this material? Do I know enough? Am I good enough to do this? And I hate to say, but there's really no way to assuage all of those fears until you've <laughs> actually gone through your first set of final exams and realized, oh, I'm not an idiot. I actually can do this. Having said that, breathe. <laughs> Remember that, um, that to use the cliche, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but that's true. Um, there, there's nothing that you can do at 2 or 3 o'clock this morning that is going to help you pass. You should just go ahead and get sleep and, and have a a methodical process for going about your preparations. Work hard, but, but don't kill yourself in the process. I think that's good advice. <laughs> so you came to the University of Arkansas as a visiting professor originally. I did. And then last year, you were full-time tenure-track faculty. What do you think? <laughs> it's been a great experience so far. I had been to Arkansas exactly once before I accepted my visiting gig here in 2016. The summer after I graduated from college, I drove through Arkansas. I stopped in Hope to see Bill Clinton's house. That is the extent of Arkansas that I had seen. So it was a little bit of a leap of faith. But I remember telling myself, you can do anything for a semester. But when I was here in the fall of 2016, I absolutely fell in love with it. I don't know if you remember two years ago, but the leaves were absolutely gorgeous. Yes. My biggest pleasant surprise was that I didn't have to drive most places. I could bicycle and walk to class. I mean, it, it genuinely was a beautiful college town. And so I fell in love with Fayetteville. It's been great. I actually live even closer to the bike trail now. So I continue walking and bicycling to work. I can walk and bike to most of the restaurants and cafes that I really like. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the college town experience that I had when I was in law school. So it's been a fantastic experience. That's great. Is there anything that's stand out as a favorite thing about being here? Or something that shocked you, that you were expecting one thing and you found something else completely? I think that I was surprised by, the, the biggest surprise was how little I drove. I was thinking when, when you're moving away from the coasts mm -hmm. that you are obviously going to need a car and you're of course going to have to drive everywhere. Um, and then when I'm back in DC visiting friends, I will often say as I'm on a run for instance, you know, I love DC, but Northwest Arkansas has one of the premier trail systems anywhere <laughs> in the entire country. 
we can thank Walmart for that. Yeah. But um, in a lot of ways, those were the, the biggest surprises. Um, um, pleasant surprises, almost all pleasant surprises. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Dorenda. You bet. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.